Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 1227 in that Bible, 2 Peter chapter 3. I'll meet you there. And we are wrapping up today our series on hell. Who's excited? I am to be done. And as we uh, have been going through this, this is week four. It's just a little mini-series for the month of July. And uh, as we've been saying throughout, if you have missed any of the messages, they're all online. You can either listen to them on audio. We have video as well. Uh, And if you want to catch up, we would encourage you to do so, just because these messages all kind of go together. It would be a little tricky uh, if you only took in a couple because of vacation or whatever. So we encourage you to catch up. And as we are uh, going through this series, the reason we did this series was because hell is just an area that I get lots of questions about. Uh, As people are wrestling through scripture and big questions about God and eternity, the topic of hell comes up a lot. And so as Mesh and I were talking and praying, uh, we decided let's take some time just to dig in. As a church family, we'll take some time to dig into the scriptures. And this is tough stuff. It is important stuff, but it is not light and fluffy stuff as we have been saying. And when I was doing my master's degree, uh, I did a course on apologetics, which is the defense of the faith. And we did a unit just on hell. And my professor who had uh, written books on the topic and who had, you know, if you can be an expert on this stuff, I don't know if you can, but if you can, he was. And as we're talking about hell, he said, if the issue of hell is not challenging for you, you're either not using your brains or you're not using your hearts. If this is not a tricky area, then you're either not uh, compassionate and feeling and and understanding that there are people who might be suffering there for eternity, uh, or maybe you feel fine that way, but you just say, no, wait, I have a view on this, and my view is the right view, and I'm not just going to engage with any of the tough questions, and that's not good either. And so as we've been going through this, we've been trying to do both. We've been trying to engage with both our heads and our hearts. And many of you, uh, especially last week, uh, had lots of questions and and were able to, to... talk about them, uh, as always it seems with Meadowbrook, in a respectful way, and I always appreciate that so much, that lots of people had questions, but they were just that, they were questions, there was not, uh, no one was going to war, no one was, you know, lobbing heretic bombs at the other side, Uh, people just came with genuine questions, wanting to have a discussion, and I'm always just so appreciative, Uh, I feel like, honestly, and I'm going to brag about us for a second, but I think we do really well at the tough stuff at Meadowbrook Church, Uh, and that's a testament to everybody, that, that, just when we talk about tough stuff like hell or legal marijuana or, or you know controversial stuff like women in leadership or whatever, we can disagree and we can get through it. Uh, and no one's quitting the church or threatening to, to blow things up and everyone just deals with it in such a gracious way. Uh, several of you said to me uh, last week, it was easier before we did this series because I didn't have to deal with any of these questions. It was easier when it was simple. I like it when it's simple. And I relate wholeheartedly. I love when things are simple. I love when things fit into a nice, neat little box. I love when everything is just neat and orderly. I'm always trying to do that as I'm working through scripture and theology. But the problem is, is that when we look at the Bible, we acknowledge, you know what? This is a really big book. And there's a lot to it. And our our heart at Meadowbrook is where the Bible is simple and clear, we will be very simple and clear. 
and where the Bible is maybe a bit broader or open to more interpretation, we need to acknowledge that if we're going to be authentic. We need to acknowledge that if we're going to be real and say, you know what, there are well-meaning Christians who love Scripture who can sometimes come to different conclusions on certain things, and, and we're going to give grace for that, and we're going to be okay with that. And, and my heart as a teacher is always uh, to be faithful to the Scripture. And when we do a series like this, like, I'm, I'm not provocative. There's nothing edgy in my, look at me, I'm boring as anything. I am conventional and conservative and boring. But my heart as a teacher is that we are faithful to Holy Scripture. And, and that needed an amen, I think. <laughs> and if we're going to be faithful to Holy Scripture, it means being faithful to all of it. Uh, and engaging with all of it, and understanding that sometimes that means taking another look at things that we trust, and truth that is really truth will still be truth if we take a look at it through scriptural eyes again. But we want to be faithful to all of scripture, and sometimes when we're trying to be faithful to all of scripture, we land on topics like hell, where you say like, well, there's a few verses over here that say one thing, but then there's a few verses over here that say something else, and how do we wrestle through and try and make that work together? And so that's where we have been. And so as we wrap it up today, there's one one more view of hell that we haven't looked at yet, and it is commonly called universalism. And the view is that everybody will be saved, that ultimately, uh, although hell is real, hell will be a place of punishment through which uh, we are kind of purified, we are refined, we pay for our sins, and then ultimately everybody will be saved. So there is a movie on Netflix right now called Come Sunday. Who's seen it? Anybody? I almost assigned it as homework for last week, and then I thought, that's a terrible idea. Uh, let's talk about it here first, and then if you want, watch, want to watch it, you can uh, go and do that. I'm going to show you a clip, and it's a true story about an American pastor named Carlton Pearson. And he was a famous pastor. He had a TV show. He had a large church. Uh, he was, they talked about him like, and he's a Pentecostal charismatic. They talked about him like he's the next Oral Roberts, uh, which in the Pentecostal world is a, is a giant. And so uh, he was kind of this up and comer and, and excellent preacher and teacher. And he came to the conclusion, he believes he heard a voice from heaven uh, that said, everybody will be saved. Hell is not anything you need to worry about. Everybody will be saved. And he went to the Bible and he found some scriptures that seemed to support that. And so he began to preach that. And so the, the movie is this story. And I, I don't know that it's a Christian-made movie necessarily, but it's his story of preaching this message and, and the church split and everything. So I'm going to show you a short clip from it. And this is him. Uh, he was called before his denomination to explain himself because what he was teaching was out of line with what the denomination taught. And so this is him uh, sort of on trial as he talks about his views of hell. I want to ask you something. Is there anybody you've loved in your own life who backslid and is in hell right now? My daddy's in hell. What about it? And did you love him? Of course I did. He was my daddy. But he beat my mama. He beat me. He was a fornicator. And now God's punishing him. He's suffering in hell. He's tortured and tormented for all eternity. So let me ask you something. Would you get him out of hell if you could? That ain't up to me. Well, if it was, if there was a way we could negotiate with God, with Jesus in the blood, you'd get your daddy out of there quick as you could, wouldn't you? I can't answer that. Of course you would. Anybody would. So the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Are we more merciful than God? 
Whew. Let's pray, and I'll send you home. Um, it's a pretty good movie, and I, I'm not ascribing to his theology in any way, which will become clear as we go through the message today, uh, but well-acted, interesting story. Martin Sheen's in it. Jason Siegel from How I Met Your Mother's in it for some reason. Um, but just if you want to see just some of the struggle that we've been talking about through this series of just the, the heart of how do we reconcile the classic view of hell with a God who is love, with a God who is merciful, with a God who is gracious, how do we put the those two things together and his struggle. Uh, I don't agree with him where he lands theologically, but the movie is just kind of interesting and, and just kind of an interesting story. And so as he holds to this view, this universalist view, uh, he loses his church, he loses his influence, and then interestingly today, uh, which I think it's maybe 25 years ago that this was all happening, uh, today he has really wandered very far from, from standard Christianity uh, and is teaching some, some things that we would say, that's just heresy, actually, what you're teaching right now. So over the last number of weeks, we've looked at several views. The classic view, this is the view that we grew up with. If you grew up in church, this is the view. Uh, even if you didn't grow up in church, you sort of understood hell in this way. Hell is a place of what the theologians call eternal conscious torment. It lasts forever. You are conscious for all of it, and you are feeling the torture, the punishment, whether it's fire or darkness or whatever. Uh, you are experiencing that torment for all eternity. That's the classic view of hell. Last week, we looked at what's called the annihilationism view. And in this view, hell is a place of temporary conscious torment. It is a place of paying the price for your sins, after which the person is destroyed. So like a log being thrown on the fire, the log will burn for a while, and then the log will just be gone. And so we looked at the pros and cons of that last week. There is scripture that suggests that. Uh, people aren't just making it up out of nowhere. And so again, if you missed either of those, you can catch up with those online. Today, we're talking about universalism, which is that hell is a place of temporary conscious torment. It is a place of punishing uh, through which people will be punished and purified and ultimately saved. It is the view that everybody will be saved at the end. It is sometimes called restorationism. Uh, if you're going to Google it to do some more research, um, sometimes it's called Christian universalism because universalism also means the view that all religions are the same and they all kind of point to the same God. So sometimes we add Christian universalism to distinguish it from that, or restorationism. And there are some variations within this viewpoint. Some people who hold to this view believe there is no hell at all. Uh, where Carlton Pearson, the bishop from the clip, ended up ultimately was he believed that there was no hell, that hell was what we created here on earth. Hell was when we sin and reap the consequences of our sin, then that is hell. And he came to that view watching uh, the Rwandan genocide unfold in the mid-90s. And he was watching it on the news and he said, there's, you know, women and children being hacked to death with machetes on the street. That's hell. Hell is here on earth. And so he would teach ultimately that uh, if you are an alcoholic and you beat your wife and you, you abuse your kids and, and you're, you're terrible to your family and you don't go to work and you destroy your body, you're bringing hell upon yourself. Uh, so there are variations of this view. That's where he landed ultimately. But this was the view in the early church. And we've talked about how in the early church, uh, they gave some room 
They defined a lot of things about the faith that were deal breakers. The nature of hell was not one of them. They all basically agreed that hell existed, but they didn't actually nail down, is it forever? Is it a place you're destroyed or whatever? They gave some room on that. And so this is the view from that time. Hell is a place of temporary conscious torment. It is a place where you go and pay the price for your sins. But the Bible usually talks about fire in the sense of judgment, but sometimes in scripture, the Bible talks about fire in the sense of purity purifying, of refining. And the picture gets used of a refiner's fire, that precious metal. You put it in the fire, and as you heat it up and put it in the fire, the impurities come to the surface where they can be removed and they can make the gold more pure. And so some have understood hell in that way. It is not uh, just a fire of judgment. It's a fire where, uh, you know, the bad parts of our life kind of get burned away. They get, they get purified out. They get judged and removed. And then ultimately, everybody will be saved. And as as we talk about that, uh, let's take a look at our text, because they have not just made this up out of nowhere. So we're in 2 Peter chapter 3, a couple of verses here, and this will just kind of be a springboard for us today. Peter's writing about the final judgment, the coming of Jesus, uh, everything that is to come. Verse 8 says, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And your version might say, God is not willing that anyone should perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. And just a reminder, as we jump into this, we've been talking about disputable matters, which are lesser matters of the faith. Not that they're less important, but that they are less clear in Scripture. And uh, there are areas of the faith where it is okay for us to agree to disagree. And when it comes to hell, people have not always agreed that that is a disputable matter. You might remember a book that came out uh, seven or eight years ago by Rob Bell called Love Wins. And did anyone read that one by chance? So he tackles the topic of hell and eternity. Um, and now where I am boring and conventional, Rob Bell, I think, is kind of edgy and provocative. I think he likes ripping things apart and poking holes in things, but he doesn't usually offer a counter argument or a solution. He just kind of likes to tear things down. And so he presented uh, what broadly you could call a universalist view. And he does it with some scripture. It's not totally created in a vacuum, but he really attacks the classic view of hell and, and presents this idea that if God is love, the classic view of hell just can't be real. Uh, and he, he really kind of goes through that. And right away, the accusations of heresy start flying. Uh, ultimately, he had to leave his church over it. Ultimately, he had to um, step down from, from regular preaching, and he ended up shifting to uh, a different sort of ministry. And it is just kind of interesting, though, I will say, with Rob Bell and with Carlton Pearson, who we saw in the clip today, uh, they both sort of began with a universalist view, and then both have wandered way further away uh, from conservative, you know, standard orthodoxy. So it, that is just kind of interesting. But right away, heresy, 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 heresy. If you look up Rob Bell on Google and Google's completing your sentence, it will be Rob Bell heresy. That will be the first thing that pops up. And it's just interesting that in the early church, uh, they did not feel that way about people who felt this way about hell. There was a teacher in the early church, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, and he lived in the 300s. You've never heard of him, 
but you believe stuff that he has written and put together. He was instrumental in the early councils. Uh, we've talked about how the, the church would get together regularly in these great councils, and they would wrestle through theology. Who is Jesus? What is the nature of the Trinity? Uh, what role does Scripture play? How are we saved? How does someone get to heaven? And they would pray and wrestle through the Scriptures, and they would come up with what we call creeds, which were these great statements of faith. And so we've talked about this already, that nowhere in the early statements of faith do they have a statement about the nature of hell. They have references that hell exists, but they don't flesh out, is it forever, is it temporary? They just didn't go there. And part of that was because they weren't in agreement. All these brilliant theologians weren't on the same page. And so Gregory of Nyssa was at some of these councils. He helped uh, formulate what's called the Nicene Creed, which is one of our key creeds that we lean on in Orthodox Christianity. He helped flesh out the nature of the Trinity and who Jesus was. And he was given the title after he died of Father of Fathers by one of these councils. The council that met after he died said, we are going to honor this man, father of fathers, meaning, you know, that's what they used to call their bishops. So he's like pastor of pastors is what they're saying. Teacher of teachers. This guy, we honor this guy and the gifts that God has given him for helping us understand scripture and who God is and the nature of this faith. And here's what this guy who the church revered had to say about hell. He said, God's end is one and one only, it is this. When the complete whole of our race shall have been perfected, from the first man to the last, some having at once in this life been cleansed from evil, others having afterwards in the necessary periods been healed by the fire of hell to offer to every one of us participation in the blessings which are in him. Gregory of Nyssa, father of fathers, is a universalist. He believes that hell is a place where we are purged. If we don't accept the free gift of salvation from Jesus here in this life, we go to hell, and in hell we are cleansed, we are purified, and then the whole race will come to, to know God. Now, I'm not saying he's right. I'm just saying they didn't call him a heretic. They had room for that, apparently. So maybe if Rob Bell had lived you know, a few centuries earlier, it might have gone a little easier for him. They had grace for the fact that people, no one was saying, well, we can't trust what this guy said about the Trinity. We need to strip him of his title of father of fathers. They gave room and grace for people who disagreed on this topic. So because of that, uh, I cannot say that universalism is heresy. I will say that universalism is some pretty poor Bible study. And we'll put it that way. And I, I just wanted to make that clear in case any of you are getting nervous. I, I don't like this view. And I've said along, these views are not all equal and are not all equally grounded in scripture. But I will explain why as we go. So we have our text today. Uh, what else do universalists hang their hat on? There's a few more scriptures as well. Romans 5.18, therefore, as one trespass, meaning Adam's sin, back in Eden, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, Jesus and the cross, leads to justification and life for all men, for all people. So universalists say, why does all not mean all? The cross came to bring justification and life for all people. Why does all not mean all? 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 20, or verses 20 to 22, Christ has indeed been raised, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all 
will be made alive. So again, universalists say, why does all not mean all? Christ, all people will be made alive. So why does that not mean what it says? Philippians 2, 10 to 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so for classic and annihilationist people, uh, we would look at that verse and say, well, in one way or another, every knee's going to bow to Jesus, right? When you stand before him, whether you loved him or whether you rejected him, when you stand before him on judgment day, your knee will bow, your tongue will confess. The difference is some of us will have done that willingly and embrace that in that light in this life. Others will not have done this in this life, but they're going to have to do it. And that's going to happen before they, they receive their judgment, as horrible as that sounds. And universalists say, well, maybe that's the case, but maybe it just means that everybody is going to come to Jesus, that everybody in the end will acknowledge Jesus as Lord, and they will confess that he is Lord, and they'll bow their knee to him. Maybe everybody doing that is what this passage is all about. A couple more. Colossians 1, 19 to 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace with his blood shed on the cross. God wants to reconcile all things through Jesus. He came to reconcile all things. So again, if, if all means all, then why wouldn't everybody be saved in the end, if all really means all? 1 Timothy 4.10, we've put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. So for those of us who believe, our reward may be better in heaven, but he's the Savior of everybody. He is the Savior of all men. And again, why does all not mean all? And then our text today, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The heart of God is for everybody to be saved. And so God is giving time for everybody to be saved. And so um, there's not nothing there, right? There are, those verses are compelling to an extent, and where, you know, classic hell and annihilationist people uh, tend to kind of sneer at universalism as it's obvious heresy. Uh, universalists, they're too emotional. We hear that a lot. They're just too emotional at the idea of hell, so they've just made up this other one. They just don't like the idea of it, and so because they don't like the idea, they're ignoring scripture and creating something, and that's not entirely fair. Uh, there are some scriptures that they can point to, right? They, they have not made this up out of nowhere. And so their big biblical argument is, uh, why does all not mean all in these passages? Why does everyone not mean everyone? These verses that talk about, you know, Jesus came to save everyone, and he is the savior of everyone, and that uh, every knee will bow, then, then why do those not mean that everybody ultimately will be saved? Uh, so they do have some scripture in their favor. It's also a view in their favor that, uh, that really emphasizes the grace and mercy of God as it comes to eternity. You know, so this idea that God is love and that God is gracious and, uh, you know, where scripture says his anger will not last forever, uh, they are able to wrestle through those scriptures and land here. The classic view of hell uh, struggles with this a little bit. And we've talked throughout this series about when it comes to hell, we have God's grace and his mercy, his justice and his holiness, and these things that you kind of have to hold in tension with each other. The classic view probably leans on his holiness and his justice more than his grace and his mercy. Universalists uh, lean on grace 
grace and mercy a lot more than justice and, and holiness. And so uh, there's a lot of hope here that God just might be that gracious. He just might be that merciful. Uh, as the bishop asked in the video clip, like, are we more merciful than God if we wouldn't put someone in hell for eternity? Are we more merciful than God is? And we're going to come back to that question before we close. Who among us hasn't uh, lost somebody where we're not sure where they are? Uh, there's a lot of hope here, if that's us. And, and so the idea that God just could be that gracious, he could just be that merciful. When it comes to what we call the problem of hell, which we've revisited, uh, how could a loving God put people in eternal conscious torment? How could a just God punish people for eternity, uh, for sins that are committed here on earth in a very short time compared to eternity? Um, the universalists don't have to deal with that. They're, it gets solved for them. Uh, how could a loving God punish people? Well, he, he doesn't. How could a just God uh, do what looks like overkill, maybe, punishing for all eternity? Uh, well, he doesn't. He will, he will punish for a time, and then all people will be saved, the universalists would say. So I have, I mean, I've studied this a fair bit through my schooling. I've been reading a lot lately, uh, just in prep for this series. And one author I read, he was a classic view guy, eternal conscious torment. And he said... I hope with all my heart universalism is true. And if you have a heart, you should hope with all your heart that universalism is true. He says, I hope it is true, but I just can't get there biblically. And, and that's exactly how I feel. I, like, if, this, if we get to heaven and this is hallelujah, that the grace of God is, is that, and, and how amazing. But I, I just can't get there biblically, and I've tried to be fair with it and, and open-minded and look at it fresh, but I just can't get there biblically. And a lot of the universalist argument uh, articulated a bit in this scene and in this movie uh, that we've re referenced already is uh, a lot of the univers universalist argument is simply, well, God wouldn't do that. And that's what a lot of the argument hinges on. I just can't imagine God doing that. I would never do that. I can't imagine God doing that. If God is love, I can't imagine love doing that. And so there is a lot of uh, potentially just kind of a lot of emotion in the argument. And you can't separate emotion from, from logic or from anything else in life. But, uh, but we're not trying to look at it from just a philosophical standard of what would God do or not do in a kind of a hypothetical way. We're wanting to say, what does the Bible say? Ultimately, what does the scripture say about hell? And when we take on that attitude of, well, I just can't imagine God doing that, we're actually sitting in judgment of God and making ourselves greater than God and saying, I feel like I know better what mercy looks like than God does. And we've talked about that already in the series in the book of Job. Uh, go read the end of the book of Job. If you ever just want to feel put in your place as a human being, Go read the end of the book of Job, the last few chapters, because the book of Job, Job goes through unimaginable suffering. He loses his children, he loses his wealth, he loses his health, uh, all in one day. And the book of Job is him wrestling with that and, and, and basically saying, God, what did I do 
to deserve this. And, and I feel like I've lived rightly before you. I don't think I did anything wrong. And, and he says throughout, oh, I wish I could just speak to God. If I could just face him in a court of law, I really feel like I could make a good argument. If I could just get an answer from him for why this is happening to me, this doesn't feel like justice. This doesn't feel like a loving God. This doesn't feel like the favor of God. And so he wrestles through this and he has, he has some friends who come alongside and they debate and they kind of argue through some of that philosophy together. And then at the end of the book, God shows up and starts talking. And what God says when he shows up at the end is, Job, I am God and you are not. And you are not actually entitled to anything from me. What I give out of my goodness, what I share with you and choose to reveal to you, uh, and God does do that. He does share out of his goodness. He does reveal and speak to us. But he says to Job, Job, you don't have the right to make demands of, of who I am. Uh, and it's beautifully poetic. He says, were you there, Job, when the foundations of the earth were laid? Were you there when I created the stars? Were you there when I created the oceans and the land? Were you there? Like, are you God? Are you God? Because if you're not, let me be God, and you, you worry about you. And so we need to be careful, not just in this topic, in any topic, that, uh, you know, God is not afraid of our questions, and, and certainly there's times in Scripture where people ask tough questions and do get clear answers, but, uh, but we always need to remember our place, that we are not equals, God does not owe us things, that we are not, uh, you know, able to, to make demands, we're not able to dismiss things just because they don't make sense to us. Right? Our job is to remember that God is God, and we are not, and not ever lose that, that dynamic. That even though Jesus, uh, when he came, would say, I call you friends now because I'm going to be showing you what I'm doing as a friend would. Uh, Jesus also makes very clear, but it, that's not an equal friendship. I'm still the master, and you're still the servant. That, that even in that intimacy that he invites us to, he is still Lord. And so we, we don't want to just kind of have... Uh, broad arguments of, well, this doesn't sound right, or I don't think God would do that. The Bible is our guide always, and again, all of Scripture. We're not just going to cherry-pick a few verses. We want to look at all of it. So here's a bit of pushback uh, from classic and annihilationists against the universalist view from Scripture. We've looked at some of these verses already. Matthew 7, 13, and 14, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So Jesus isn't talking like, like everyone's going to make it. He isn't talking that way. He's saying there is, there is a wide path that's leading to destruction, however you want to interpret destruction. We looked at that verse last week. But uh, there is a way to eternal life, but not everyone's going to make it. Jesus would seem to say that pretty clearly. Matthew 10, 28, this is the King James. Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Don't fear man but rather fear the Lord who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And we talked about the word destroy in the original Greek means destroy. And so, again, that doesn't sound like everybody is going to be redeemed in the end. It sounds like we need to walk, uh, you know, reverently and fearfully before the Lord who holds life and death and eternity in his hands. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, the evil will be punished with everlasting destruction. The wicked will be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Again, you can debate what everlasting destruction means and what being shut out means, but it doesn't sound like everybody's going to be welcomed to the table when we talk about hell. 
Jesus in John 3.16, maybe the most famous verse of Scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And the subtext is then, but if you don't believe in him, then, then perishing is, is where you're headed. That if you're not trusting with him and walking with him. And so there's a condition there. And so classic and annihilationists would look at those universalist verses that we just read and say, yes, of course it comes to all. It is offered to all. Jesus died for all, and it is available to all. But you can't just hold on to the all verses and ignore some of the if verses that seem to put a condition on that. That it's available to everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on Jesus will be saved. You got to call on him, though. Right? You got to call on him first. Jesus would say in John 3:36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them, that Jesus is the way out. And, and again, there's a condition there, and it does not in any way suggest that uh, everyone's going to get a free pass at the end of all of this. Romans 10:9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Like Again, that's a, there's an if there. It's not automatic. There's an if involved. The hard part, too, about the universalist view is that it's not always even consistent. Even those scriptures that we went through uh, sometimes aren't even consistently applied to the same passage. Uh, and what I mean by that is here's our text today, 2 Peter 3, 8, 9. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So universalists, this would be a big verse for them. See, God wants everybody saved. God is waiting, and he wants everybody to be saved. But just one verse earlier, in verse 7, is a verse we've looked at in a different context in this series. So if you just back up half a step it says, by the same word, talking about judgment day, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So you can't just pretend verse 7 is not there. You can't just say, well, I like, you know, the end of that verse 9, that God's not willing that any should perish. Like two verses earlier, God's talking about the destruction of the ungodly on Judgment Day, and we talked last week about that, that, that destruction view of annihilationism. And so sometimes the way the universalists are applying their verses aren't even consistent with the same passage of Scripture, if you read it in context. Uh, Peter is in no way saying that everybody will be saved. Look at verse 7. He's saying Judgment Day is coming, and get yourself ready for it. So you can't just pull things. This is where I say it's just it's bad Bible study just to pull things terribly out of context like that. And not just pull things out of context, but just ignore verses on the other side. And, and whichever view you land on as we've gone through this series, um, you have some tough questions to answer, right? And we've talked about that too and tried to be fair about that. If you like the classic view, uh, you have some tough questions to answer about uh, what we talked about last week. Why does destruction not mean destruction then, as the annihilationists believe? If you believe the annihilationist view, you have some tough questions. And the problem with the universalist view is that even if they hang their hat on a few of these scriptures and, and some of them taken out of context, they don't really have a good answer for all the other scriptures we've looked at in this series. So we looked at a bunch of classic verses 
passages, I won't read them all, uh, but that talk about hell as a place, and it is a place of eternity. It is a place, a couple of verses suggest, of uh, the place where the torment will continue forever. They don't really have a good answer for this, and so they tend to say, well, it's a metaphor, or uh, like Carlton Pearson, it's, a, it's something that happens here on earth. You get judged here on earth, and uh, there's really no reason to read these verses that way. When Jesus talks about hell, he's talking about it like there is a place, and it's associated with judgment day, and it's so terrible that I'm going to die so that you don't have to go there if you'll follow me instead. All of the annihilationist verses from last week about hell being a place of destruction, uh, that hell is maybe not a place of eternal conscious torment, but where we are punished for a while and then wiped out, there's not a really good universalist response to these ones, other than, again, it's just a metaphor. Uh, and that's just really convenient. We could say that about any scripture we don't like on any topic. If just, I don't like it, it's hard, therefore it must be a metaphor and we can get out of anything tough or difficult. But again, when, when Jesus and the apostles are talking about hell, it doesn't sound like they're talking about it as a metaphor or as something that you just can kind of, you know, don't worry about it. Don't worry about this place because in the end, we're all getting to heaven anyway. Anytime scripture talks about hell, it is with a fierce and stark warning that you do not want to go to this place. And if we're all just going to end up in heaven at the end anyway, then why did Jesus have to die? And why, why is there this urgency to share the gospel around the world and this, this drive that people are going to this place, so we need to share the good news with them? Why is that all in there in Scripture if we're all just going to end up in heaven anyway? And so, again, I, I can't get to the point of calling it heresy because there is some scripture they lean on. The early church didn't call universalism heresy. But I do think it's, it's just weak Bible study. And compared to the other two views, this is the weakest one by far. And even that question uh, that the bishop asked as he came to the end of his little speech there, uh, are we more merciful than God? And you sort of go like, oh, wow, good question. And then as I thought about it, I went, I think it's, it maybe sounds a bit more profound <laughs> than it actually is. Because the answer, of course, is no. Of course not. Of course not. But there's a flip side of that. Are we more holy than God? Are we more just than God? Uh, and that, that has to be part of that conversation if you're going to start asking that question. And again, if God is God, then he gets to define what holiness is. He gets to define what justice is. He gets to define what mercy is. And in the area of the classic view of hell, which we really have to wrestle through when it comes to the mercy of God, annihilationists don't have to do that quite as much. But this idea that uh, hell is there, it is real, it was created for the devil and his angels, the mercy of God shows up in Jesus saying, I'll die for you so you don't have to go there. That's what mercy looks like. That is the picture of incredible, beautiful, perfect mercy. Where Jesus said, I love you too much to let you go there. I also love you enough that I will let you make the choice yourself. But mercy has been offered to everybody on earth. And none of us have gone to a cross for our loved ones. So who are we to say, yeah, I guess I'm more merciful than God if one of these other views is true. And so, of course, we're not more merciful than God because Jesus came and he died to save us and he died to save us from something. And, and whether you like the classic view better or annihilationist view, or if you, if you like the universalist view better, I would love to chat with you some more. But wherever you land there, Jesus died to save us, and he died to save us from something. And the picture uh, of the gospel, one of the pictures that sometimes gets used is it's like we're on a sinking ship. The ship is sinking, uh, and we are going down. The ship is, is, we're in the middle of the ocean, and we're doomed, all of us. 
But on that ship, there are lifeboats. And there is enough lifeboats for everybody. The lifeboats are offered to everybody. But you got to get in the lifeboat if you're going to survive. You actually have to take that step to get in the lifeboat. You can't just stand on the deck and say, I'm sure it'll probably all work out. Like the ship is going down. And there is a lifeboat available. And there is room for all. The classic and the, the annihilationist would look at those verses that the universalists look at and say, yeah, there's enough lifeboats for everybody. But scripture seems to say not everybody's going to jump in. And the only way to survive the ship going down is to get into that lifeboat. And, and of course, Jesus is that lifeboat. Jesus is the lifeline that has been thrown to us, that as we trust and follow him, he is the safe way out. And he came and offers that to everybody. But we have to be willing to grab a hold. And so if you confess Jesus is Lord, if you will acknowledge him as the Lord of your life, if you will follow him as the Lord of your life, if you will trust that he is that lifeboat and you will follow in his ways, you will follow him straight into eternity. Universalists would say, if you don't do that, you'll pay for your sins and then you'll get there anyway. I don't hold to that personally. Um, and wherever you land on hell yourself, either way, Jesus is the solution. Jesus came to save us from that torment, from that torture. Come on up, worship team. We're just about done here. If you have any questions about the message or the series, uh, we do have an email address, questions at meadowbrook.ca, and we'd be happy to take some time to dig into that with you. I don't imagine we've solved everything in four weeks, but we would be happy to keep the conversation going and encourage you, keep digging into this stuff. Uh, we've done kind of half an hour on each of these views uh, where, you know, volumes and volumes have been written about each of these views. We cannot possibly cover all of it in such a short time. We did a broad overview. I didn't engage with every scripture or every argument, but encourage you to keep digging yourself. Get into the Bible yourself. Look at the scriptures yourself. Ultimately, we want everything that we hold to to be well-grounded in God's word. And, and even as we wrestle through it together and, and tough questions and everything, scripture is always what we're coming back to. So I encourage you to keep digging into that. Uh, so that's the end of the series. Uh, I said this earlier, but sincerely from my heart, uh, thanks for being awesome through this because I was a little nervous about jumping in just because it's a touchy subject. And I have been nervous in the past occasionally just jumping into uh, touchier subjects. And, and every time, I think it's probably normal to feel a bit nervous, but every time, whenever we're talking about something uh, difficult, whenever it's over, I always just say, man, my church is amazing as we go through this stuff. Man, the people are gracious. Man, we really have worked hard to create an atmosphere where we, we can agree to disagree on some of the lesser things and we don't need to attack anybody and, and we can just continue the conversation respectfully. And, and even as tough questions have come up in the last couple of weeks, uh, they're respectful tough questions, right? And, and that's just amazing. So thanks for being great as we've gone through this series together. As I was wrapping up last week's sermon, someone grabbed me after the service and a uh, solid Christian leader in the church. And they just said, um, you know what? It's kind of interesting. And there's some questions I need to work through. And I want to go back and read my Bible again. And I'm not really sure actually where I land on some of this stuff. But he said, the big takeaway for me, the big most important thing for me, he said, is that Jesus is the Savior. That's ultimately wherever we'll find out one day what the full truth is about all of this stuff. But the most important thing is that Jesus is the savior. Jesus is the solution. That's the most important thing. And so we jump into the lifeboat with Jesus and we say, I'm with you, Lord, I am with you. And not just that, because there are people who are still on the deck of the ship 
and they don't know that there's a lifeboat and they're maybe not convinced about the lifeboat, but they need to hear the news too, that there's a way out from this. And so that is our job as well. And so thank you for being great as we've gone through this series together. I know it's been challenging. I hope it's been helpful as well, even in terms of some solutions to some of these tough questions. And we wanna spend a bit of time in worship before we close today. So I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet. Join us as we sing, the words will be up on the screen. As we wrap up our service, um, I'm just gonna call our prayer team forward. Um, just in front of the stage here. And if you guys are needing prayer, I encourage you to come forward and let us pray for you. Um, if you have any questions or if you haven't made that decision yet to get into the lifeboat, um, please come pray with us, guys, because it is such an easily available thing that God has given you that you just have to get in. Um, so please come with us. And if you are not needing prayer, I just ask that you visit outside in the lobby or maybe at the cafe um, just to give um, some privacy here for those who are praying. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that you sent your son to die on a cross, Lord, so that we can have a relationship with you, that we could stand before you, God, that we could be made righteous. Father, I thank you that we do not have to spend eternity in hell and we do not need to be destroyed because we have you, Lord. I ask that if there is anyone here in this congregation, in this building, Lord, that has not made that decision, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them. God, that you would open their eyes and their hearts and show them your love, show them your mercy. God, I thank you that you are loving and that you are merciful, but I thank you that you are just. God, that your word is perfect and that is truth, and that we can lean on it. So even though we may have questions, Lord, I ask that you would give us a desire and a hunger to read your word, to be in your scripture. God, because we love you, not because we just want to know, but because we have a desire to know the God of the universe, the God who made us, Lord, because we desire a relationship with you, because you desire that with us. So I ask that as we leave this place, that um, you would just continue that desire, Lord, that I would not stop within these four walls, but continue. Um, we ask you all these things in your name. Amen. Have a good Sunday, everyone. <laughs>